0: Another part where we said we're going to make it work is we decided to make it a small plate restaurant. And I did not really think of business models till then. But Mm. this was a place which had to turn over $900 a day just for covering rent in Triple Net.
1: Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotz from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guests, Ranveer Barar. Ranveer, are you ready to rock? Absolutely, Andrew, absolutely. Let's, let's do this. All right. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. Ranveer is a television celebrity, Master Chef India judge, author, restaurateur, food film producer and benefactor. To put it simply, Chef Ranier is one of the most celebrated chefs in India. His popularity on television is matched by his tremendous fan following on social media as well. I know a few of your followers right here in Bangkok, in fact. Getting the basics right and revering the kitchen as an artist would his or her studio are mantras. He lives by and propagates to others as well. With a bestseller in his kitty, A popular host and judge on television and an artist both in and out of the kitchen, Chef Barat calls himself a food Sufi on a constant culinary quest. And by the way, you come to me from one of my interns. Her name is Supmani. She turned me on to you. Why? Because her mom can't stop talking about you. She says, he's a man of passion and a desire to reveal the heritage of all different types of Indian cuisine. And lastly, it's Sukhmani's mom, who is a co-owner of the Chowpatti Street Food Restaurant here in Bangkok. So thanks to Sukhmani and her mom for bringing Ranveer to my audience. So why don't you take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life? First of all, thank you
0: for for the lovely introduction. Um, So far, it's been a life without complaints. You know, as I say, God's been kind; cannot complain, and that's how it's been so far. And I plan to keep all of that, uh, you know, complaint-free. But I was I was born in a small town in India, and that small town sort of stayed inside of me. I try and hold on to the small town kid as much as possible, because because the hustle is real there, you know, and that's something that that has driven me all my life, in my good moments and the not so good moments. Food is something that, you know, I think it just it wasn't really forced. You know, you really can't force food. You have it three times a day at least. Mm-hmm. So it it is it is never a forced subject. It is what you choose to do with the subject that matters and I chose to cook it. And I plan to I plan to continue doing that. And I plan to continue doing
1: that for the rest of my life. And you know, one of the things about what you're doing that's kind of interesting is that on the one hand, there are chefs that have the same passion as you, but they, they just keep it in the kitchen. You are bringing your passion out in your style out to the world through videos and all of your, you know, everything that you do. Can you just tell us a little bit about that aspect of it? Because clearly, you know, and I'll put a link in the show notes for the audience to watch your speech that you did, you know, giving your background of, of your youth, and your decision to go into food but this part of it is kind of an interesting addition compared to some other chefs
0: well i think i think all of us have a relationship to food you know we build it over the years while the primary core of my relationship to food is cooking but i did not want it to just stay like that you know i think all of us and our relationships evolve and my relationship with food has sort of evolved to include understanding people's relationships with food, to include understanding the history of food, to include expressing myself through uh, food conversations. So food sort of became a medium of projection, a singular medium of projection for me. And cooking became an essential part of it because, you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? But I realized that if I had to keep cooking for life, I needed to have a wholesome relationship to food. And all these various modes of expressions, whether it's writing about food or doing food television or food content or food poetry, is essentially just an extension of that relationship. Beautiful,
1: beautiful. Yeah, it's, I, I noticed that you, uh, you cooked your first food at the age of 13, sweet rice. Mita, right. Well, well. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I just want to turn the audience on to that video and I'll put it in the show notes, check it out and you can learn more. But hey, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. All right, here we go. I'll dive right in. So I got success
0: very young. You know, I was an executive chef when i was 25 that is the time when a lot of people my age would be at least four levels below the post of an executive chef i got i i'd say you know i got lucky met the right people got mentored by the right people and then nothing would stop me but then i got bored you know and i was excited to because executive chefs in hotels in india they don't really get to cook and at 25 you want to cook you know you want to Use your hands being a chef. I couldn't use, I couldn't do much of that. So a year, year and a half into being an executive chef, I got bored and I was excited to cook and I wanted to get out of hotels, you know, in spite of being extremely successful in hotels, making a lot of money at that age, some of it getting here into my head. But the excitement was surreal and I wanted to sort of prove myself out of of my um, country. So a bunch of friends, friends of friends that I met in a trip to the US sort of got together and said, well, we have somebody who wants to do restaurants, he's a friend of ours, why don't you talk to him and partner up? And it was just like that. It was just like I was constructing a pizza oven in my hotel and I had my head inside the oven and I got this call and said, and the guy said, well, uh, here we are, you want to do a restaurant, do you, want, do you want to team up? And we are in the Boston, we are in Boston, in the US A. and I said, sure, let's do this. I didn't even ask him what the restaurant would be about, what, you know, what the plans were. I was just so sure that it was about something that I am extremely successful in. And I, you know, I'm like, yeah, cool. So I just immediately the same day, I, I snuck my head out of the oven, typed my resignation, gave it to my general manager after a month without much of a thought, flew, flew to uh, the U.S. And, you know, initially the restaurant was an extremely design driven restaurant. So the investment, both in terms of time and money on the design was huge. You know, we were talking about a million dollar ceiling in 2007. And uh, yeah, and uh, so they, they, There were delays, the restaurant wouldn't wouldn't open because they couldn't get the ceiling right. You know, it was just a lot of things coming together at the right places at the right time to form the ceiling. We kept breaking the ceiling, building the ceiling. And it seemed to be a really important part of what we were doing. So I was like, you know, being a hotel chef, I really did not bother about, you know, the good thing about being a hotel chef is you do your job, everybody else does their job. You know, you're not an entrepreneur in, in, Mm -hmm. in the technical sense of the word. You're a professional who's just sending an email for everything he needs done that he cannot do. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and uh,
0: yeah, so so the whole thing took a lot of time. And we got strained on resources by the time we opened because, you know, we just believed too much in design. Gradually, you know, when we came into ourselves, the idea, the the brief sort of became that we would not do Indian food. We would do Asian food. Mm-hmm in a very modern Asian sort of food, because Indian was was already done, overrated, one of the partners had already done an Indian restaurant. I just, I went with the flow, you know, again, in that confidence that, yeah, it's all right, you know, I can feed all of us. It's fun to look back at it like this.
1: Yeah.
0: And just make fun of yourself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what else can we do?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So uh, you know, we we said, okay, let us be French, Asian, Indian wouldn't be be much fit. I did not, you know, personally, as an individual, as a chef, you need to understand your connect with your food, you know, and it's not just about techniques. It's about, it's definitely not about techniques. Let's put it mm. that, mm. you know, it is about your relationship to it, your connect to it, your, where do you find that passion? What is it that connects you to? And I could not find. I was solving problems with the menu. I wasn't finding a connect. Yep. I did, we did some great food, but it didn't connect. Or the menu didn't connect because I didn't connect to the menu because I wasn't an Asian chef with a. I hadn't trained in that food a lot, you know. I was learning along the way, but the biggest, the biggest hollow inside was the lack of connect. If it were Indian food, I connect to it. I would have a story to it. I would or at least start developing a more personal story to it. You know, mm-hmm. some of it is age at 27, you know, you're still connecting to a lot of things, including yourself somewhat to arrogance, but overall the restaurant did well. When we opened, we did, we did extremely, extremely well. You know, the other, uh, another part where we, where we said we're going to make it work is we decided to make it a small plate restaurant, you know, and I did not, really think of business models till then. But mm. this was a place which had which had to turn over $900 a day just for covering rent in triple net, you know. And it had 160 seats to fill. Small plate restaurants work beautifully for neighborhood restaurants, for restaurants with smaller rents, because the turnover is high. And, you know, here you needed an average check that was higher. Mm. you know, in order to sustain profitability. Also, the kitchen, you know, was small. Now, for small, every plate is sort of an effort to bring out. So whether you're making a big plate or a small plate, at least 80% of the effort goes into making that plate. Real estate goes into making that plate. Space in the kitchen goes into making that plate. We didn't have a kitchen, the size of the kitchen to support it. So while we were doing small plates, we weren't, Necessarily making the bottom line to sustain the fixed costs that came with having a huge restaurant, with having a huge investment, the returns were expected were way higher. And in the middle of in the middle of all that, I just I didn't say anything. I just allowed I just allowed it to be the numbers wouldn't the numbers wouldn't add up. I did not come with an understanding of labor laws and labor costs in the US. We come from India, where labor as a resource is is an extremely cheap resource. Overtime doesn't really matter to us because the basic labor costs are way lower. Right. It wasn't wasn't the case. So first six months were, you know, you are you are starting a project that is delayed. You've invested more than what you thought you'd invest on day one, which is you know mostly the case with any restaurant in the world. You end up starting late and you end up investing more mm. and then you've really not had enough capital as working capital to start off because most of it has gone towards the capex yep. now once you've done all that and then you've created an opportunity for yourself but people are working twice as hard because you're making them do overtime they're creating more you're putting out more plates because it's a 180 mm-hmm. cover restaurant that requires um You know, if it is five plates per cover, you're talking about 700, 800 odd plates. So your, your staff's working hard to push plates out for the small plates, you know, you want to put the best food out. So, you know, you're not really holding back when it comes to effort per plate or cost per plate, because you're a new restaurant, you know, you, you You want to, you got to hustle and all of it sort of comes together and you realize that you've lost six months and at the most what you've been able to do is become a three point five star restaurant. You know, three point five one five, which is which is not bad. But with the resources that you put in, with everything that's going on, you would expect a better kickstart. But then your lack of your lack of understanding of of manpower management, mm-hmm. your lack of you not speaking about the right things that you should speak about as a business mm-hmm. partner, it's sort of It sort of all comes together and then the recession hits, you know, and uh, then, you know, then it becomes real. When that happens, it becomes real because as it is, you know, your fixed costs aren't going down. I think that is when it became bad. It became bad and uh, there was a fallout with the partners and, you know, they said, well, if I have to do Asian food, I might as well get an Asian chef, you know, which should have been my call in the first place saying, hey guys, you want? to do Asian food, why do you call me here? Yeah. You know, And then, uh, yeah, and then, uh, you know, as usual, there's a little bit of discontent with partnerships, you know, and, and the ability to, there was an opportunity for me to learn on the go mm. that sort of got short-circuited by the recession, you know, that sort of strained our resources so much that this whole, I learn on the go part didn't really work. You know, if you would have gotten six more months, you would have
1: learned on the go. You would have probably pulled it back up. Was there a, a day that you can remember when you realize it's over? It's not well, I was work? sitting. I was sitting. Um, a friend of mine had come from
0: Mumbai. Oh, he was in Delhi that time. So he'd come from India and we he, he were sitting having a beer as my day off. And my, my partner was very slyly had signed the other chef, over, um, got her over from me or without me knowing it. So um, we were just, we were having a glass of beer and uh, and he just, you know, we were right next door to the restaurant and my partners called me and said, ranveer why don't you come over? We have something urgent to talk about. And I walked in completely unaware and clueless. Again, partly because of ignorance, partly because of arrogance. And they said, well, ranveer here we are. This is $5,000. That's your check. That's all we owe you. You can get it checked. We've got, you you know uh, if you want to go through the legal system. You can go through the legal system. This is all we owe you. Thank you very much. We hope to see you soon. And um, yeah, we hope to see you soon. We'll cross paths and and the usual stuff. So what happened was for me, it was like oh my god, this is real. That's when that's the only time when it was real, is the only time when I got to realize it was real. It sort of it it falls on you, you know, because you're in a different country. Mm. This is all, you were super excited about it and you've never really
1: seen failure as an individual. Whatever you've done. Well, you were a star. What are you talking about? At your yeah. age, in India, you're a star, you go to America, that's got to be a tough, a tough hit. Yeah. So it, it took some time,
0: but then, you know, I think the confidence that food sort of gives you is, that's the beauty of having a skill in your hand, is mm. You're down, but you're never out because you know that you can just stand up any day, turn a fire on and start cooking. And I think that I wouldn't call it a cushion, but that ground that you always have, the ground of skill, it's sort of, it's a big factor in me coming back. But also for me, at that point in time, I realized that entrepreneurship, being an entrepreneur and being a professional is not one and the same thing. You know, at that point in time, with that experience, I also realized that if you have something to say, say it, you know just believing that you're gonna ah, it's okay, you know I'll do this is not good enough because it's important to have it's important to have conversations mm. even though you're one vote, you're still one vote, never undermine your vote yeah. and I think I think what what also it it taught me was it brought me to a very basic relationship with food saying, okay, now I know how to cook. Let's start from there. And that I think is when you cut the fluff off and
1: start building yourself back up again,
0: but that was, that was my worst investment ever.
1: So that's uh, I have to admit as I'm listening, I'm getting hungry, but we're not going (laughs) to go there. What I'm going to ask you to do now is kind of list out the lessons that you learn so that we can really take away you know, what you learn from it so that we can learn from it? You
0: know, I think the first lesson that I learned is what works for the other person will not necessarily work for you. If it is a food that's working in your city or some other restaurant, doesn't mean that it's going to work for you. Mm. In life and in restaurants, it's the same thing. You know, if it's working for somebody else, don't just do it because it's, it's a trend, it's working. You've seen a couple of restaurants that are doing well, you'll do the same thing, don't do that. I think one is that every problem is unique. Every solution is unique. That's what I've learned. Mm. Apply yourself to the problem and the solution in detail. The second thing that I've learned is, you know, there is a fine balance between being prepared and the confidence of winging it. You know, don't, don't be over prepared, but don't just depend on winging it. Don't just depend on, on, on winging it. There's no <laughs> other way. The third thing that I realized was, the business part and respecting the money that is going out is extremely important. You know, you might, be, you might be an artist and you might want to do that, but then keep that aspect as an outlet to do other things. Don't become a completely crazy, creative artist and try and run a business. Mm. You know, you need to gestate. You need to work with that artist, create avenues for it, keep it satisfied. But don't let it completely overshadow and overpower your business. You need to do things for passion. You need to, sometimes you need to blow money for passion. You know, Mm. there are passion projects that you need to take and do for that. But business is a business. You know, that was another uh, learning that I had at an individual level, at an emotional level. I realized that denial is something that I had to very strongly deal with a lot of times. And that's been my problem from a long time ago that you sometimes you close your eyes and you believe that it will go away. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. You, know, you got to really take it on and, and there is no right or wrong way. Taking it on means either fighting or it's fight or flight. Nothing's wrong with either fight or flight, but yep. you got to do it at the right moment and not close your eyes too. at an emotional level. It also, I think it made it change. The way it changed me as a person is I don't look for top shelf solutions anymore. Mm-hmm. When it comes to me, I can sense top-shelf solutions. I have uh, learned to prod deeper, prod myself deeper, prod people deeper, ask ask, ask more questions to myself and others to actually understand what we are trying to do and what we are trying to achieve and to be generally to be able to contribute. Because for me, the biggest, the saddest part of it was I couldn't even contribute because I held back from contributing mm. to conversations where I should have said something spoken something spoken my mind probed
1: more dwelled more asked more questions so i guess you know one of the things before we go to the next section of kind of what i take away i'd like you to speak for just a moment to the idea of of losing in business of your dreams failing or your goals failing thinking about all those amazing chefs all around India, all around the world, that they brought their passion, they're good people, they've worked real hard, but for one reason or another, which you can never predict, it failed. And it's it's a painful experience. What advice would you give that person who's already kind of coming, you know, going through that right now? having to make that decision about bailing out, having to, having to rebuild themselves. What one thing would you tell them that could help them to get through this time?
0: I, uh, you know, the, the more, um, now that I've lived that time in and, and, and such detail with you, Andrew, I think it's still, uh, you know, I keep a little bit of that pain with me all the time as a reminder. But beyond that, it's only the lessons that I keep. Beyond that, it's only the lessons that sort of help me move forward. If anybody is has to, has to sort of take away, and it's painful, you know, it's not just your dream, it's also dreams of people who've been associated with you. It's also a lot of things. But uh, I think for me, the biggest takeaway is the fact that you never, I, I don't think, I don't think it's ever about giving up, you know. And I think it's wrong to compare ourselves to successful people and bring ourselves down. I think everybody has a has a different story, you know, a different journey. I think the ability, what I've learned is it's all a part of the journey. Mm. And it's the outcome of the journey that matters, you know. You can't choose to end the journey when you want to. You, the <laughs> journey will end, end when it wants to. You have to get up, play along. And that's that for me is something that you know that's a message for everybody you can't you've chosen this profession you've chosen that you've chosen you know to be passionate about it you know you can't choose when it ends
1: so let go in some ways let it happen let the flow happen yeah okay so now let let me summarize what i took away from your story if you don't mind you know it's interesting because Listening to you talk, you talk about, you know, I think one of the things is interesting is talking about the business model. And, you know, I think a lot of times in business, people get overpowered by their passion and they forget about the business model. And, and like I, I say, when I teach finance is that, you know, it's all about revenue. That's your starting point. And revenue is price times quantity. You got 10 tables in your restaurant. There's your quantity. You know, you could turn them three times, four times a day, whatever, that's your quantity. Now the question is, what's your price? Once we've identified what the average price per table is or per person, the number of turns of that, we're done. There's your capacity. Your only opportunity to gain capacity now comes from increasing price or maybe expanding your restaurant. Maybe putting in a second one, (laughs) haha, but wait a minute, putting in a second one brings a whole new set of skills because you can't run two restaurants at the same time. Somebody's gotta run one while you run another or whatever. So all of a sudden there's a lot to think about about business model that I appreciate that what you talked about. And I think that you also talked about something, a word that it's not that common coming out of someone like, let's say that's you know passionate about food and that's a working capital. So what is working capital? Well, I wanna tell you a story about when I started my coffee factory in Thailand with my best friend, Dale. I was working as an investment banker and he was working, setting up our factory. Everything was going well until the recession hit, just like your story, except it was a different recession. It was the 1997 Asian financial crisis. And here we were in Bangkok, Thailand, which was the center of the whole thing. In a very short amount of time, we lost pretty much all of our customers. And we had this factory where we had invested a lot of money in the fixed assets of the business, but we had to get green coffee. So we called to the coffee supplier and we said, look, we need green coffee because we've got our first customers and all that. And then they said, well, how many tons do you want to buy? And we said, well, we weren't really thinking tons. We were thinking more like kilos. And they said, well, sorry, we only minimum order is one ton. And we looked at each other like, holy crap, how are we going to sell one ton? Then, we said, all right, well, we'll take that one ton. So we ordered that one ton and we asked them, can we pay you in you know, 60 days or whatever? And he said, no, for startup companies, it's only cash. So all of a sudden, we had to take our very minimal amount of cash because we'd spent all of our money on the fixed assets of the business, setting up the fitting and the roasting machine. And all of a sudden, we had to t- part with this very valuable cash to buy this ton of coffee. But we thought, well, we'll sell that within, let's say, I don't know, a few months, maybe three or four months. So we got this roasted, uh, this green coffee on the floor of the factory in this corner, we stacked it up, we spent this cash, we're almost out of cash. It was, it was about two years later when we roasted the last of that stack of coffee. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the concept of working capital. It is the short-term things that you need to run your business every day. And in most startups, people underestimate the cash demands of that working capital, And that's my own personal experience with it. But I heard you talk about it. And I know in the food business, you know, it's, it's what, you, you're so much turnover.
0: Yeah, and it's just a lot of moving parts. It's just, you know, you're short of cash and then your refrigerator stops working, that's $1,000. The oven stops working, that's $3,000 you know, suddenly the hood starts leaking and you're like, you know, it's just, it's, it's just a lot of moving parts in restaurants. You've got to be ready with working capital.
1: So now the other thing I take away that I thought was, you know, that I take away now after learning more about you, you know, learning about you from afar and now getting to know you and listening to your story. I want to say that what I learned from this story is be more, I even feel a little bit choked up as I say it, but be more of who you are, be more of who you are. You don't have to be anything, be yourself, make your connection to the food, to the earth, to the people, to whatever it is that you connect with. And then your journey, like you said, is the idea of kind of, I'm picturing myself going down a river, kind of on a raft. Sometimes it's a little bit turbulent, Sometimes it's smooth, but don't fight it. Follow that path and follow that passion and, and be more of who you are. And so if I had to sum up my, my feeling of what I've learned from your story and about you, that's what I would say. But that's the
0: part you have to fight the most. And at least that's the part I fight the most, you know, because especially when you, when you start garnering possessions, this who you are gets challenged every day. You know, and I think that's the fight that all of us have every day. Cause if somebody's making more that, you know, or if somebody's more in the space that where you want to be, the whole faith of the, you know, every day that faith in yourself gets challenged. Mm. I think that's the fight that at least I fight every day is being who you are, you know, and, and not overburdening yourself with either you know, overburning yourself physically or overburdening yourself mentally with expectations is a big
1: one for me. Yeah, I guess the the world is, you know, there's so much pressures, whether it's consumerism or being good and, you know, in your parents' eyes and other people's eyes. And it reminds me of another story. When I was 17, I graduated from high school and on the day I graduated high school, I actually had graduated from a drug rehab center. It was my third one. By the time I was 17, but this one took and I walked out of that rehab center and I walked onto the stage of my high school, you know, graduation, people didn't know where I'd been for all this time. And from that day to today, this is the reason why I don't drink or use any drugs. So it really worked. But I left there and my mom said, well, congratulations, you know, and I got home and all that. And she sat down with me and my mom and dad and they said, you're six weeks away from turning 18. And I just want to tell you, you got to move out when you're 18. And I thought it was a little bit harsh at the time, because I had done a good job and things were getting better. But my parents said, we're not we're not going to go for a ride if you're going to go back and get in trouble. And I said, Okay, I'll do it. And I went out and I got a job at a factory. I worked on a factory production line. And they didn't give me any money or anything like that. They let me borrow their old one of their old cars. And I used that for a little bit. And then I used a motorcycle that I had a little, little, little motorcycle. And I can remember, the one thing I remember about that time was I was so happy. I was free. I had a job. I made my own money. I was with my friends at night, and we were talking about good things. You know, we weren't out getting drunk or something. And I I just remember that time I had no money, and I had happiness. Why is this important? Because in the 1997 crisis, when that coffee was sitting on our factory floor, what happened was our business was just about to be lost, and then all of a sudden, in April of 1998, my company said, we gotta let you go, I lost my job. Dale and I looked at each other, we're here in Thailand, you know, two Ohio boys setting up a little business here, a factory, we got no business. And then we said, we have to, we have to move into the factory to cut all costs down to the bone. We moved into the factory, we cleared away the accounting office, we put in two beds, it's like we were back at school. We were in that room and it was in August of 1998, When it looked like all is lost, we're gonna lose this business. I lost my career, never gonna get it back. Depths of depression. You can imagine one of those really, really rainy Sundays. You can smell the rain. You can just smell it everywhere. We were sitting in the in that room, because it was the only room that had any air conditioning, the rest of it's a factory. And my sister from America called, and she said, my cancer has returned. Can you please come home? The doctor says I'm gonna to live to one more month. When I hung up that phone, Dale and I just cried. Everything was lost. But it was the comfort of knowing that when I had nothing, I had happiness. When I graduated from high school and I got out. Unfortunately, I lost my sister. I got to spend a week with her. And then I came back to a depression, a little bit like you explained in that YouTube video that I highly recommend people watch. But the point is, is that once we get in touch with ourselves, and we realize that we are not our possessions, we are not our money, we are who we are as a spirit, friends, family, those things, those things carry us. And I think in your speech, you talked about how people started to reach out and things started to move again. And that's my message to to anybody out there struggling with business and struggling with failure, is that you can make it through this time Losing in business is not illegal. You can let go, restart. Just don't let go of your friends and families and your relationships. So this is my, you know, my ending part of kind of what I take away from your story. You, you summed
0: it up beautifully, Andrew. And thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing the piece of your life. Yeah. You've inspired me to, you know, keep going and make those small changes that I need to make. Thank you.
1: Yep. All right. So last question. What's your number one goal (laughs) for the next 12 months?
0: I think my number one goal for the next 12 months is have one product out there, just crack one product that I can focus on and be happy about putting out there for the rest of my life. You know, just one product, something that solves a bigger need, a bigger problem. You know, I think that for me is the number one goal.
1: Fantastic. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Ranveer, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And also, I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones. Why do I say brave? Because when I invite most people on the show, they say no. They'd prefer to talk about their winners. But you are one of the brave ones who has turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience?
0: Well, um, keep eating. I I always say, you know, um, in order to be happy, you need to have a happy relationship with food. Be happy around food. Keeps me in business.
1: (laughs) Amen. All right, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our, well, fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.